Greetings, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here, the China History Podcast. Sometime back in mid-2017, I did this special episode for Cathay Pacific Airways that was meant to be an accompaniment to the BBC miniseries Taboo that they had just started offering as part of their in-flight entertainment service. Because the Honorable British East India Company was so central to the story, you know, playing Tom Hardy's nemesis, Cathay Pacific asked me to whip up something special that sort of offered up a nice one-hour overview of the East India Company without taking too deep of a dive. After all, they didn't want me to put their passengers to sleep. So this episode is going to be part one of a short two-part series. It's nothing new and has been available fleet-wide on Cathay since, I think, uh, August or September 2017. And now here it is for your own personal enjoyment. I'll put part two out the following week. And without any further fanfare or wasting time, here it is. There were many companies who followed and who exceeded the British East India Company in size and business turnover. But you'd have to look long and hard and far and wide to find a more historic commercial enterprise. In tracing the timeline of the rise and fall of the Honorable Company, one of its many names, one also can observe the glorious but often tortured beginnings of European trade with the East and the birth of what we know in our day as global maritime trade. The arguments for and against the merits and faults of the company will rage on for eternity, perhaps. Many in the company and those who invested in its early days became rich from the trade. But many more on the other side were exploited in the process. So let's take an hour to sail through history from the time of the age of exploration until the late 19th century, and focus on the British East India Company's 274-year history. The whole idea of sea trade, like we know it today, began as a natural next step during the age of exploration. The astrolabe allowed ships to confidently take to the seas and to calculate their latitude. But longitude, that took a long time to figure out. It took until the 1770s with John Harrison's marine chronometer. That's what prevented most men from daring to sail the high seas. The old tried-and-true method of trade between East and West was still the overland route, with markets and all the great commercial cities between the Mediterranean and China that developed as a result of the Silk Roads going back to the Han Dynasty. By the late 15th century... Enough was known about how to navigate so that men dared to be a little more adventurous. 1492, Columbus discovered the Americas. 1494, the Portuguese claimed Brazil. 1497, John Cabot landed in North America. And in 1498, as far as our story is concerned, the pivotal event happened. Vasco da Gama sailed around the Cape of Good Hope, and now the secret of how to get from Europe to the fabled Far East by sea was revealed. And let us not forget, this was also the century of Admiral Zheng He and his seven voyages. Though the Portuguese, and later on the Spanish, had the spread of Catholicism in mind wherever they traveled around the world, that didn't mean they didn't look to see if there were any high-margin bargains available that might do well in the home country. In fact, there were, and in 1502, Vasco da Gama set up the first 
trading post in the city of Calicut, today called Kojkode, the Malabar Coast, Kerala State. Eight years later, halfway up the coast, the Portuguese built their stronghold in Goa, and they held it till 1961. Then, in 1511, the mighty Portuguese, sailing under the command of Alfonso de Albuquerque, took Malacca, and from this base on the west coast of modern-day peninsular Malaysia, they got wind of a magical place to the south, known as the Spice Islands. The potential for trade, perhaps conquest, was too great a lure, and south the Portuguese sailed to the Banda Sea, to the Banda Islands, between Sulawesi and West Papua. We in our day take the availability of spices for granted. You could order any spice in the world, no matter how exotic, and have it shipped to your door in a week's time, or less. But in the early 1500s, these South Sea exotic spices weren't readily available, And like tea, many spices, too, began their life as a medicine that offered a variety of cures to many 16th-century maladies. Chief among these historic spices were cloves and nutmeg. And if you had nutmeg, you also had mace, the fruit inside the nutmeg. Two different spice experiences in a single natural package. These were the spices that kicked off maritime trade between East and West. These... Spices cost pennies at the source and raked in profits on the other end that drove men to risk their lives to get it. The Portuguese had a lock on the spice trade during the 1500s, but that was about to come to an end. The wealth that was pouring into Portugal and Spain was considerable enough whereby two up-and-comers, namely the English and the Dutch, stood up and took notice. When they began plundering on the high seas and discovered the wealth that was being hauled back to Portugal and Spain, merchants in both London and Amsterdam felt compelled to throw their hat in the ring. The Dutch had a bit of a head start on the English. A few years, but that was long enough to establish themselves in and around the land that one day will become Indonesia. By the end of the 16th century, they had trading posts in the Moluccas, Sumatra, China, and Sri Lanka, they were on a roll. The English, not to be outdone, were feeling rather invincible after defeating the Spanish Armada in 1588. Some of the more adventurous men of commerce in London were already dabbling in the East Indies trade, but nothing serious yet. But that was about to change. That this East Indies trade could bring potential riches to investors and to the crown was a given. The upfront cost was going to be considerable and required more than just one investor, and such a venture absolutely needed the backing of a sovereign to give it protection and status in whatever ports they called at. And so it was, a group of over a hundred investors appealed to and was granted a 15-year royal charter from Queen Elizabeth I. The date was December 31st, 1600. Both the investors and the crown were given limited liability, and most valuable, and at the same time hard to enforce, a monopoly on all trade east of the Cape of Good Hope. And with that, the Company of Merchants of London, trading in the East Indies, as it was called, was off and running. Sir Thomas Smith was appointed the first governor of the company, and James Lancaster commanded their first voyage of five vessels. The monopoly that the company enjoyed 
lasted for 213 years. It was the key to their survival and their early success. It was all fine and good in the early 1600s when the commercial sea lanes were pretty thin. But it didn't take very long for the perilous risk of sailing around the Cape of Good Hope to become rather routine. And seeing the fortunes being made, more people started to dive into the Far East trade. If they were English, they couldn't get around that East India Company monopoly. But that doesn't mean nobody tried. For the next couple centuries, the company will play whack-a-mole with these interlopers, as they were called, private ships trying to cash in on the EIC's action. And their collective role in shaping the development of international trade and commerce will be no less important than that of their nemesis, the British East India Company. The first voyage for the company sailed out of the Thames at Woolwich in 1601. Destination, the Moluccas. Now, this isn't Malacca on the Malaysian coast. The Moluccas, between Sulawesi and West Papua, consisted of the main islands of Maluku and North Maluku, and a whole sprinkling of smaller islands. And that's where all the action was. Those were the Spice Islands, the Banda Sea. Can you imagine what it must have been like when the English showed up for the first time? early 17th century, sailing in those waters were traders speaking Turkish, Gujarati, Bengali, Arabic, Malay, Chinese, and because they had that few-year head start, Dutch as well. They'll launch their own Dutch East India Company in 1602, but they were fully set up and already trading in the East Indies by then. Now, I'm not going to get into too much detail, but despite their mutual embrace of Protestantism, the English and the Dutch are going to bang each other over the head for all the days of the EIC's existence when they were forced to get along due to a treaty or political circumstances. They hilted their swords, and it was all business all the time. But the competition between English and Dutch traders was fierce, intense, and at times quite bloody with copious amounts of human life and treasure lost. That's how much money was at stake out in those parts. You see, in the early 17th century, the same supply and demand principles we know in our day applied back then, too. If too many players got in on the game and began flooding the market with like product, well, the high-margin, rare, exotic product soon became a low-priced commodity. So the Dutch were making money hand over fist, supplying the West with cloves, nutmeg, and other spices, and raking in unimaginable profits. And the English tried to muscle in on the spice business. Well, the Dutch tolerated them at first, but it won't take long before they start learning to hate each other. The commodity that England was real good at producing was called broadcloth, or English woolens. They thought they'd be able to move a lot of this stuff, but they found out yeah, it wasn't a popular fabric in the tropics, especially near the equator where they were showing their wares. Now, they'll try and try, but they'll never succeed in opening up the market. They'd have to look elsewhere. When you have nothing to trade for the local goods, you're left with no choice but to resort to paying with gold or silver. Now, this isn't a bad thing so long as you don't have to do it for too long. The first voyage sailed back to England in 1603, and all investors were handed their share of the profits. That was it. Investors didn't buy shares in the company. Well, not yet. That would come later. In the early years, 
they bought shares in each individual voyage. And the profits from each voyage were paid out to the investors. And if they wanted to roll that over in a new voyage, that's what they did. In 1608, during the company's fourth voyage, they landed in India. And so began that long association. It sure had its ups and downs. The Dutch hadn't yet cracked the Indian market, so the English were able to operate under less pressure than in the Spice Islands, where the Dutch got to push them around a lot. Fortunately for the English, India was also a land of spices. Over the next two years, trading posts, or as they were referred to in the trade, factories, would be set up. And these would be the places where business could be conducted and warehouses and residences necessary to house men and cargo could be constructed. In 1609, King James I renewed the company's charter. Everything at this early stage, despite the Dutch and Portuguese always trying to get in the way, was looking more and more promising. 1612 saw the Battle of Swali near the city of Surat, north of Mumbai and Gujarat state. The English gave the Portuguese a major drubbing, and this impressed the Indian Mughal Emperor Jahangir sufficiently enough whereby he granted the company's emissary, Sir Thomas Rowe, the permission to set up a factory at Surat. And here, 285 miles north of Mumbai, is where it all began in India for Great Britain. Still determined to find a market for those woolens, the company tried its luck in colder climes, namely in Japan. Now, those of you who read James Clavell's 1975 blockbuster novel Shogun may remember this time. 1613-1614, company ships called on Japan. They exchanged gifts on behalf of James I and Shogun Tokugawa Ieyasu. Now, among the English was one Will Adams, the inspiration for the character Blackthorn. And, of course, the shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu, he was the Toronaga character, played so well by the great Toshiro Mifune. It all started off good, but Japan will throw them and everyone else out rather soon. So with the support of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir, the English were able to get some traction in India. The factory at Surat was thriving in no time at all, but the Indian trade was going to need some time to develop. The real money was still in the Spice Islands. The English and Dutch had been going at it for two decades, and finally, in 1623, came the massacre at Amboina. English, Japanese, and some Portuguese traders were killed. The Dutch, they were playing for keeps, and they didn't want anyone on their turf. So with this action the company made the decision to scale down their trading activities in the East Indies and to exit the spice trade for now. Things were starting to look very promising in India, and after 1623, that's where the English decided to focus their attention. In 1640, they established themselves on the Coromandel Coast in Chennai, back then called Madras. They built Fort St. George and traded in the main riches of Chennai, which was Madras cotton and spices. Things were off and running for the East India Company. They did a brisk business in cotton, silk, indigo, salt, saltpeter, and of course, much later on, in tea and opium too. Saltpeter was one of the three main ingredients of gunpowder, and with all the wars slated for the next few hundred years, 
It was very much in demand all the time. All the wars, alliances, broken alliances, and continental rivalries were played out in the East as well. 1652-1674, the Anglo-Dutch Wars and the Nine Years' War among them. It was quite a tumultuous first hundred years for the company. Attempts at opening up trade in Siam, Japan, Taiwan, and other places didn't turn out well. They had already been chased out of the Spice Islands by the Dutch. But as the 18th century dawned, despite all the complications and wars on the continent... It was going to be a time for the East India Company to make some serious money. And in the process, legends would live and die and history would be written. There was a new commodity that everybody was dabbling in. The Portuguese and Dutch being the first, as usual. But the British, too, found this novel product. Something that would sure fetch a nice price back in the home country. This was the leaf of the Camellia sinensis, known more commonly as the tea plant. In 1664, the EIC purchased 100 pounds of the stuff, and it sold quite well amongst the beautiful people back in London. In less than a century, this 100 pounds will turn into more than 2,300 tons, and tea will be the biggest thing the East India Company ever trades in. The Dutch weren't the only ones giving the company a hard time. So big had this East Indies trade become, especially in Madras cotton goods. Yeah, the first pushback and riots on the streets of England. The local cotton mills didn't like this flood of foreign imports and what it was doing to prices. And the workers, too. This depressed wages, and they weren't happy about that. Some things never change. There was even a riot against the company headquarters carried out by protesters from the textile industry. Well, the Second Anglo-Dutch War ended with the Treaty of Breda in 1667. This is where the East India Company officially threw in the towel as far as further endeavors in the spice trade. The tiny, nutmeg-rich Bandasi island of Run, where they tried so hard since the very first voyage to develop a trading post, had to be given up to the Dutch. And in return for the EIC's exit from the East Indies spice trade, the Dutch handed over the island of Manhattan and New Amsterdam, which, of course, will later be renamed to New York City. 1668 saw the company establishing factories in Goa, Chittagong, Mumbai, Chennai, and on a group of islands that will one day make up the city of Kolkata. And it was in Mumbai, Chennai, and Kolkata, Bombay, Madras, and Calcutta, where most of the company's history took place in the east. These cities were each known as presidencies. Three historic fortresses were built, Fort William in Calcutta, Fort St. George in Madras, and the castle in Bombay. And these three buildings were the symbols of company might in India. In 1670, Charles II had signed laws that gave the company quite a bit of power. They could mint money, form alliances, wage war, negotiate peace, build fortresses, command troops, and exercise civil and criminal jurisdiction over the areas under their control. In 1673, the British had a new headache to deal with in India when the French began setting themselves up in Pondicherry, a hundred miles south of Madras. Louis XIV signed the charter in 1664 that had created the French East India Company. The French, under the fearless Joseph-Francois Duplis, 
will later defy the EIC and aggressively grow their business in India until they are finally sent packing. As the French were establishing themselves in India, the EIC was trying to open factories in Taiwan. From this base, they sailed across the strait to trade directly with Xiamen, or Amoy as it was called back then, in China. And this was the first taste of direct China trade. But once the Qing dynasty, in power since 1644, once they consolidated their control on the south of China, (laughs) they shut that trade down real fast. 1684 was an important year for the company. They received official permission to engage in the China trade. This was primarily the same stuff that China was famous for going back to the Silk Roads, tea, porcelain, and silk. As the 17th century comes to a close, tea has by now taken Europe by storm, and the mass market at the lower end hadn't even had their cuppa yet. The company suffered a major setback, well, the first of many, in October 1686 after playing hardball with the Nawab of Bengal, the richest state in the Mughal Empire. Well, this resulted in an exit from Bengal in 1689, but they'd be back. A Nawab, by the way, was like uh, a governor of a province. The Mughal emperor appointed them. And these are the rulers that the EIC was constantly dueling with. Some played ball with the Western traders, and some didn't. The East India Company, well, new to the China trade, was learning the hard way about all the now well-known challenges. The one who spearheaded these early attempts at the China trade was Thomas Yale, brother of East India Company legend Elihu Yale. When they first pulled into Canton, they went through the same gauntlet of formalities as everyone else, paying every bribe, gift, fee, and hand that was extended to them. It was no doubt excruciating, as it was with every trader. China had the goods everyone wanted. There were imitators, but especially with respect to tea, no one could do it like China. Elihu Yale, by the way, one of the few Americans to make the grade in the pinnacles of the East India Company, would later go on to found a rather well-known university in New Haven, Connecticut that later bore his name. Right around the turn of the century, you could definitely say the best days of the Mughal Empire were behind them. As 1699 turned into the year 1700, one could tell it was clearly an empire in decline. The Western powers who traded in India were pretty much the same group of countries who later engaged in China trade. In both India and China's case, this period of decline in their respective imperial houses, was exploited to the fullest extent by these trading companies, the British East India Company chief among them, to extract the maximum amount of value in concessions. It really was a case of cursed bad luck that both countries, India and China, ended up on the wrong side of the Industrial Revolution. The British were able to take advantage of the attacks on the moguls from within and without. In this kind of an environment, it became common for local Indian politicians and rulers to seek support from the EIC. In 1697, when approached by the Nawab of Bengal for help in putting down his rival, the company rose to the occasion, and for their support of the Nawab, they received permission to found Calcutta and to build Fort William. Then the very next year, the EIC was granted, well, in return for a 16,000 rupee payment to the Nawab, the rights 
to start tax farming the villages that comprise this new settlement in Calcutta. Of course, it was a fraction of the size it is today. Now, as I said, the company always had these interlopers and competitors nipping at their heels. In June of 1698, a new East India Company was granted a charter that well, basically offered the same rights and privileges as the original or old East India Company. So now there were two. And although the EIC took a big stake in the new EIC, these two firms did not get along. The dirty tricks on both sides carried out against the other came hard and fast. In their world, these merchants there was nothing more important than money. And that's what was at stake here. And the Mughal officials were more than happy to get involved and stir things up between the two rivals. They didn't care. Old company, new company. To the Indian officials, this merely added up to double the payoffs. Also in the 1690s, you could say sailing on the high seas was nowhere near the mystery and danger that it used to be. So more and more people got attracted to the trade. Not only were there two East India companies operating, there were more trading vessels than ever, all operating outside of the EIC system. Now, they couldn't transmit funds to the East and couldn't ship goods to an English port, but there was more to their world of international trade than that. The trade in between all the various ports between Yemen and the Philippines kept everyone busy. And a good deal of this intraport shipping involved agencies that allowed these vessels to move EIC cargo. Profits earned by these private operators or country traders, as they were referred to back then, could always be easily remitted back to England via a pocket full of diamonds, like a certain James Delaney did in the Taboo miniseries. The larger the trade became the more the EIC had to put up with all this unwanted competition. They used every ounce of their political influence and no small amount of treasure to legislate in England against these interlopers and fight them head-on and keep them at bay. But there were too many of them. The pickings were way too rich wherever you went. All the commercial ports from the Swahili coast to the China coast how could one company have a monopoly on all that? And the sellers? <laughs> they didn't care. Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, French, English. Money was money. They mostly cared about how big the payoffs and gifts were, or who came to their aid when they needed some extra muscle to deal with a domestic rival. So here at the turn of the century, so many things happening so quickly. The world was changing, and it didn't take centuries anymore for sea changes to happen on the European continent or elsewhere. There was always something big happening. A war, a bloody succession struggle, a civil war, you name it. For the first time, the war between the EIC monopolists and the anti-monopolists began to be played out in the halls of parliament. And the EIC had to shell out some major coin to keep the fires stoked in their favor so that their paid representatives in both houses saw to it that the monopoly stayed in effect. Thanks to popular outrage in England and a lot of aggressive pushback from the locals in India, the new East India Company had to run for cover. For years, people had been calling for the two East India Companies to unite, but there was too much 
bad blood, too much pride, and greed. But in April 1702, the instrument of union got signed, and the two companies became one. The United Company of Merchants of England, trading in the East Indies. It stayed this way to the very end. It took some time before this third edition of the East India Company actually became one single, smooth-running, well-oiled machine. But that's what happened. In the 1700s, oh, the company raked in some nice profits. Under the United Company's first governor, the legendary EIC stalwart Thomas Pitt, the company saw magnificent growth. From his control center in Madras, Pitt ushered in a golden age for the company. This was the man who gave us the famous Pitt Diamond, 140.64 carats, now on display at the Louvre since 1887. It was paid for by some of Pitt's winnings in the service of the company. Today it's known as the Regent Diamond. By 1707 came the Act of Union. Scotland and England combined, giving us the Kingdom of Great Britain. And as an old saying went back then, it was the East India Company who put the great into Great Britain. And that same year, a major obstacle to unfettered company fortunes in India died. This was the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb. During his 49-year reign, he took the Mughal Empire to great heights. The friendly relations between the EIC and this last effective Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb were less than good. So his passing as far as the company was concerned, portended future good business. Already by 1710, things were firing on all cylinders. No major drama, just trade being carried out. Ten to fifteen company ships a year were sailing between England and all their main haunts, the coasts of India, China, Yemen, Persia, and of course their long-time possession of St. Helena. This tiny island, the final home of Napoleon Bonaparte after his defeat at Waterloo in 1815, was discovered by the Portuguese, but in 1657 was granted to the East India Company by Oliver Cromwell. It became the halfway point for British ships sailing back and forth between the home country and the east. The EIC introduced coffee to the island, and these plantations, with seeds taken from the port of Mocha in Yemen, were planted and thrived. Starbucks had a limited offer of St. Helena coffee in 2016, going for $145 a pound. With Emperor Aurangzeb out of the way, it ushered in a long, painful-to-watch decline of the Mughal Empire. The EIC was more than happy to help facilitate this decline and to milk the failing rulers of any and all concessions that had a positive impact on commerce. So long as Aurangzeb was alive, the thoughts and prayers of being granted a firman by the emperor, a grant that would give the company expanded trading rights throughout India, it was out of the question. But now it was different, and by 1717, the East India Company had their own little great leap forward in the form of a firman. Now this precious document was granted by the new emperor, Farouk Sier, at the Red Fort in Delhi the Mughal capital. Despite handing over an ungodly amount of bribes, presents, gold, and treasures, obtaining this firman 
was a high point for the company. It gave them a great amount of power and privileges inside India, and a lot of the Nawabs and other officials were no longer able to torment and push the British around like before. Now, at the three presidencies of Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay, they were nice and secure. The Furman was displayed like the Ten Commandments at the gates of their three main forts. Within no time at all, EIC trade in Bengal alone was equal to the value of all foreign trade combined. In the decade after the Furman was granted, trade boomed like never before. The growth in private country traders also exploded. These traders engaged in commerce in between the ports stretching from Yemen to Manila in the Philippines. Most were registered with the EIC and for 2% carried a lot of EIC intraport cargo. Now, they were forbidden to ship goods to England. I already said that. That's where the interlopers came in. They continued to thumb their nose at the EIC and remained a stone in their boot, defying their monopoly and dodging the honorable companies endless attempts to stop them. By the 1730s, the whole matter of EIC and non-EIC vessels going at it on the high seas and the major ports was in full swing. Everyone was trying to evade the company, although they had a long reach. In the end, there were simply too many of these country traders and interlopers, and the world was so wide. It was impossible to stop them all, or even most of them, the Monopoly's firewall had a somewhat limiting effect. And I am going to abruptly and inconveniently put the bookmark in right here, and we will call it a day for now. Next week, we'll finish this one off. I think on my SoundCloud and YouTube channels, I'll offer it to you in one single episode. Still fulminating about that. Until that time, take care, everyone, and I hope you will be willing to stoop to join me again for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.